Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Matt Wool is a veteran manager with experience in both client-facing and operational roles for a technology-oriented consulting firms. He's now president of Acceleration Partners, and Matt's responsibilities include the oversight of project delivery and maintenance of client satisfaction. He's helped drive the company's growth from five employees when he joined in 2012 to over 130 employees on four continents today. Acceleration Partners is a performance marketing firm focused on driving growth for the world's leading brands via affiliate and other partnership-based programs. They have client roster that includes Target, Adidas, Reebok, Warby Parker, and many others. Prior to Acceleration Partners, Matt managed the rollout of an innovative software for a leading technology transfer consultancy. He was also a key account manager for healthcare technology services firm, handling large hospitals and insurers. Matt started his career in the film industry with production and creative roles at Fox, Searchlight, DreamWorks Animation, and Disney. And Matt, welcome to the Second Command podcast. Thanks, Cameron. Great to be here. Yeah, so just so that everybody else can get up to speed, because I probably am just going to keep laughing for five minutes. This is take number three um, that's happened over six months. So six months ago, I started doing the first attempt to have Matt on a podcast and we were having huge technology issues. So we decided to do round two. Round two, we were at about the 41 minute mark and I realized, I think I had one question left and I had not started recording. So um, Matt, Thank you for doing this round three. I, I'm, I think if you were anybody else, you would have like completely hated me and discounted me. But thankfully, we knew each other over the years through the, you were one of the founding members of the CEO Alliance, one of the very first people there. So thanks for, for giving a shit and coming back on. Yeah, it's, it's my pleasure. And it just gives us an opportunity to practice. So uh, <laughs> we, we should be good today. All right. So um, give, us, give us a bit of a background as to what Acceleration Partners is. I know I, I call it a performance marketing firm, but for people that don't know what that is or haven't heard of Acceleration Partners, tell us what you are and, and how you're different from some of the others that are around or similar to your industry. Yep, yep. So we are actually what we call ourselves these days is really partner marketing. And that encompasses uh, what most people know of as affiliate marketing, which is a channel in digital marketing that typically sits next to SEO and paid search and paid social. Um, it also includes other types of online partnerships that are tracked and paid on some type of performance. Um, there's a lot of business development deals that fall in that category, influencers, other kinds of relationships. So uh, really, in a nutshell, we're running partnership programs uh, online that uh, really help our clients scale efficiently. Okay. So in the, in the early days of, of the internet back in like 1998, I got involved with a company called um, Commission Junction and they were doing what was called affiliate marketing back then. How are you different from somebody like them? Yeah. So we're different from them in a number of ways. So in our industry, where it started back then, there were companies like Commission Junction and what they were, were uh, both technology platforms as well as uh, professional services organizations. They they were the equivalent of uh, Google, but also running the paid search program for you. And at the time, not that many people knew what affiliate marketing or partner marketing really was. 
and that seemed like a great solution. It was one-stop shopping. Over time, as companies have gotten much more sophisticated with attribution, and they've started to look at uh, one-stop shops as maybe not being the best solution, um, they've moved much more towards agencies to actually manage their programs, and, and that's us. And so we're able to do things in a much more sophisticated way with a very high level of customer service uh, and generate results that, uh, more, that, that the legacy players who do both sides of the equation were not really able to do. Okay, cool. All right, go back to the beginning. So you and Bob met, Bob is the CEO and, um, of, of Acceleration Partners. You guys met back in business school. Uh, well, so I was in business school and he had put out an ad, uh, I forget if it was Craigslist or just like the Boston University listserv, um, basically looking for an intern. And it was um, 2008, so the economy wasn't awesome. <laughs> and uh, he was looking for some help on some digital marketing stuff. And I, uh, I applied for that and did that with him for a summer. Uh, I then went off and did some consulting work, as you mentioned earlier, at, at uh, healthcare companies. And then a couple of years later, when he was ready to really scale an agency, he asked me to come back in order to uh, oversee the client engagements as VP of client services. So we had like three or four employees at that point. We had our first company meeting uh, at his kitchen table. Actually, it might have been his parents' kitchen table. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and now we've got 150 people actually on four continents. So it's been pretty cool. Yeah, I don't know what was funnier that I just snorted or that um, <laughs> parents' kitchen table. Okay, so... Walk me through what someone who is as skilled as you and confident as you and has both some experience and street cred at the time, why do you join somebody who has a four-person company? I've never really actually understood that and, and I've always tried to do it, but why do guys like you or women like you, um, why do they join these small companies or what did you see? Yeah, so it, it's a really good question and um, I, Bob and I have discussed this many times. The real answer is that I just wasn't happy where I was. And, you know, I was at a point in my life, in my early 30s, I guess it was, late 20s, early 30s, where um, I'd made a little bit of money. Um, I had a little bit of cushion. And I was just looking at the next 20 years and saying, do I really want to be somewhere where I'm really not very happy? Um, to be perfectly honest, when I joined up with Bob, I did not anticipate anything near where we are today. I don't think either of us did, but I thought it would be a place where I could do good work with people that I liked and do well enough financially. And honestly, like that's been the Acceleration Partners mantra that we've carried through the whole time. You know, we, uh, we're a great place to work. We uh, are not, in all transparency, the place where you're going to make the most money, especially in digital marketing, but there's a lot of other stuff that we bring to the table that, that, that keep us really happy. Yeah, and I'm going to come back to the best place to work, but just a data point on that. I think recently <laughs> you guys were ranked as the number 12 company in the United States to work for based on Glassdoor. So you're a little bit past the whole, you're a good place to work. You guys are at like world-class level. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I, uh, it's, it's, uh, I, to be perfectly honest, it is Bob's passion and it's really what drives him every day. So I do everything I can to support that. But yeah, we, we, we try to be as good of a place to work as we can. Yeah. So I want to come back to that around the culture stuff. So talk to us about your kind of career then with acceleration partners. I mean, when you start with a company with four people and now at 130 today, and, and you're also a distributed workforce. You don't have any physical office spaces. All 130 employees are still based wherever they happen to be that day, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. That's right. So um, how, how have you grown as a leader? What have, what have you done to grow? How have you stayed relevant? Um, because that's pretty massive growth. Yeah. 
think the first thing I've done is I have evolved with the company. And as we look at the company, you know, we have gone through a number of different stages. We went through uh, a number of them, you know, with you as, as a coach and helping us with this evolution. But when we started, you know, at zero to 20 people, um, I knew everybody. I knew everything that was going on. It was a very hands-on management style. And, uh, you know, the type of leadership that we needed was just jumping in wherever we needed a hand because we were small and we didn't have people to do everything. What I find is that in each stage of our development, zero to 20, 20 to 50, you know, 50 to 100, now 100 plus in, in, in multinational, each stage requires a completely different skill set. And what I really try to do and, and our whole leadership team has really tried to do is recognize that, understand the skills that we need and try to upskill ourselves as best as we can in order to stay relevant in that period. You know, it is very possible that we will get to a period where I'm no longer able to upskill myself um, for the, you know, for what's required in that period. We've had members of our leadership team along the way that we're not able to do that, you know, at different periods of the company. It's just the way it is. It's not not bad. It's just how it goes. But I, I think the number one thing that I've done is with Bob's help, recognize what's required in each of those stages, and then we've both really worked to make the adjustments as leaders to to be relevant in those stages. So, so give us a couple of specifics, like what specifically have you had to upskill yourself on over the years? Maybe give us a couple of, a couple of even transition points. So, I mean, the biggest one I think was once we got to 50 people, because once we got to 50 people, we just no longer knew everything that was going on or even really everyone that was there. And, um, we got, it got to the point where it was no longer about even delegation, right? Like uh, if, if you think about stages, right. And you go from like, you're doing everything and then you're, uh, you're, you're starting to delegate stuff and then you are, um, you know, and then as, as a company gets bigger, it's not just about delegating. It's actually about growing people and coaching people. And so that's the stage I think where we really started to move from just delegating, uh, to, to, you know, really coaching and needing to trust, but verify, uh, there's just no way that we could keep our our thumb on everything. So we had to make sure that everyone in the organization was the right person. They had the right coaching, the right skills, the right training, and then they could go and do what they needed to do. Yeah, I love that whole phrase, trust but verify. We used to call it inspect what you expect. Um, yep. So walk, give us an example of, of trust but verify and where you've actually done that. Yeah, I mean, the best example I could think of is um, we have a, uh, a chief client officer. Um, she oversees probably 80% of the headcount uh, of the company. Um, at this point, 90% of what happens in her organization, I don't really see. Um, and probably 60% of what happens in her organization, she doesn't even see. And then, uh, you know, probably 20% of what happens in the organization, the person below her doesn't see. So it's, it's, it's that kind of example. I've worked with her over the past several years as she's moved from, you know, a, a digital marketing manager up to leading one of our teams, up to being our VP of client service, up to being our, our chief client officer. Uh, and at this point, it's really, I trust her implicitly. Um, but, you know, we still have check-ins. I still ask her what's going on. I still push on stuff where we need to to make sure that I'm verifying. And she does the same all the way down. And I think as long as you have that alignment and you have the right people in those seats, it'll work. Cool. All right. Um, so you and Bob are kind of running the company at the CEO, COO. 
how do you and he split roles? What, what currently reports into him and what currently reports to you? Yeah, so the way that we split it um, kind of at a, at a high level is that I'm running today's business and he's building tomorrow's business. Ah. So what that means in practice is that uh, I have functional accountability for all the day-to-day operations of the business with the exception of marketing. So sales, HR, uh, client services, um, uh, finance, and then also our, our regional teams uh, ultimately all report to me. They all have extremely competent leaders to oversee them. So again, I'm kind of trusting but verifying on all of them. Um, and, and my job is to make sure that they have everything they need. They're doing what they need to be doing. The accountability is there, hitting their numbers. We're not getting sued. We're making payroll, all that exciting stuff. Um, you know, Bob's job is really to be thinking about next year and the year after that. Where are we innovating? What does our culture need to look like? What are the big ideas we need? Um, really spearheading thought leadership and, and speaking and, and all that kind of stuff, looking towards the future to build the business. He also does a lot on kind of business development, kind of bigger partnerships, that kind of stuff. Um, and, and marketing does report to him. He's an excellent marketing mind, and, and mm-hmm. frankly, I'm not, so it's just a good way to split it. So, so that's how we split things up. Um, we certainly overlap in the middle in some places. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's less good. But, uh, but in general, as long, you know, when we stay in those lanes, things are, are really work well. I want to dive into something that I guess I had insights to um, mm-hmm. during our coaching or even during the years that you were a CEO Alliance member. Bob had this crazy random idea and it was to start sending out emails to nobody, like 12 people yep. and then sending it to 40 people and then 60 people. And every week he was sending out this email called the, I was a Friday forward. Friday forward. Yeah. Friday, Friday forward. And did I just see the other day that he has a hundred thousand subscribers to that? Yeah, it, it, it's crazy. And, and, and I know where you're going with this. When he, when he told me he wanted to do this, I said, why? Like, why? this is ridiculous. Yeah, well, I, did, I did too. Yeah, we both yeah, did. Exactly. And, and he was like, no, trust me, this is going to be great. And, uh, and he was right and I was wrong. And, and what we always joke about is kind of like, I, I, you know, out of 10 ideas that he throws out, usually there are two that I'm, that maybe there's, usually there's one that I'm like lukewarm on and one that I'm really excited about and eight that I just kind of am saying no. So typically the one that I'm, I'm really excited about is the one that we agree on and, uh, and, and we go with. The, the, this is one of the rare cases where I was just like, I don't get it, and he, but he felt it and he did it and now it's, it's totally blown up. Um, but what makes it great is that it's totally authentic, it's totally him, you know, oh, it's, it's, not sale, it's not sales, it's, yeah, it's great. No, it's, it's so random. But like, so how did you, because I've heard this so often from CEO Alliance members is that their entrepreneur has these crazy, you know, big shiny object ideas, the, the coolest thing we ever have to do. And, and we, as the ops guy or person, sit, sit back and we're like, I don't get it. Or we mm-hmm. about them and say, no, how do you filter those to give him the space to be the entrepreneur that he needs to be? How do you, how do you um, chime in on it? How do you help him make decisions? Because some of it isn't easy to do. Like that one is pretty simple and doesn't require a lot of bandwidth of your team, I would guess. Whereas mm-hmm. other, other of these crazy ideas can require a lot of bandwidth of your team. Yes. So, so where it starts typically is he and I ruminate on a idea. And I wish I had a more scientific explanation for this, but after working with him for almost eight years, it, it's, it comes down to a gut feeling at this point where if he's saying something, number one, 
I know in my gut, if he's just throwing it out there because he's an entrepreneur and he just, you know, has idea diarrhea, or if he's saying it because it's something he really believes in. And, and frankly, that's my first filter. Like a lot of times he, you know, entrepreneurs will just throw out ideas because they've got a million ideas. But I, I think there's really a difference between the ones they really believe in and the ones that they're just kind of throwing out there. Right. And so my, so, so that's honestly a gut call and that's just been working together for a long time. So when it's something he really believes in, those are typically the ones that I latch onto. And a lot of times what happens is he has to really get the idea out of his head and explain it to me because it's not super clear initially. Yeah, how, how does and he once do we that? Both, uh, <laughs> a lot of me asking more questions and, and pulling it out of him. And uh, look, one of the things about him is that he's very cognizant of, 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 of the way he is, right? So he understands that, that a lot of times he'll say something and it's clear in his mind, but it's not clearly articulated to others. So, you know, he, he's, it's not like he's upset about that. So I'll just be like, oh, I don't get it. Why? And then I'll, I'll just say that over and over again until finally he kind of gets it out in the way that he really means. And, and then, it, then it makes sense. Okay. So, so, so this, is, this is important because this is really a very specific skill that a COO needs to be good at is asking enough of the questions to understand the idea that the entrepreneur wants us to execute on. But I think the real, the art of that, like the skill is asking the questions. The art is doing it in a way that we don't piss them off. So how do you how do you ask all of those questions like the who, what, when, where, why, and how of these ideas to understand it more without getting Bob upset that you're yeah. debating him or you don't like it? How do you do it? Yeah. So first of all, I'm very lucky because Bob is very even tempered and I can count on one hand the number of times he's been like legitimately pissed off. So, um, so in that way, I, I, you know, I know a lot of other people, entrepreneurs are much more hot tempered than he is, yeah, but, I mean, but ultimately, um, what it is is that we have a relationship that's really built on on a lot of trust, and so he knows that if I'm asking him questions and pushing on him, that it's not because I think he's a jerk or think his ideas are dumb or any of that. He, he understands that this is part of the process, right? And so I, I really think that's what it is: is that you have to have that level of of trust that you know when I ask him a lot of questions or when I say I don't get it. He's not taking that personally. He sees that I'm trying to get it from him and really understand what he's trying to say. Okay. So another one of his crazy ideas was he wanted to write a book. Um, and I, I actively think that all CEOs should write a book nowadays, especially when it's so easy to, to put out a good quality one. Um, and I think he worked with Scribe as well. But how did he... How did you guys launch his first book? Perform, was it called Performance Partnership or... Yeah, performance um, partnerships. So what was the what was the idea with that and how did you tie the CEO having a book into scaling the company? How have you leveraged that and used that, I guess, strategically? Yeah. So in terms of uh, of the book, um, you know, his I and to his credit, this was the right idea for sure. The thing about our industry is that it has traditionally lacked what most industries would consider true thought leadership, and it has traditionally lacked what most what most industries would consider um, uh, kind of you know luminaries, right? The, the the folks that are just the ones that that really cut through the crap in that industry, and that you know clients and people tend to to flock to. Um, what Bob, to a certain extent, had, had became prior to the book both of those things to people who knew him. 
The problem was we needed a platform where we could go to larger stages, literally and figuratively, and have folks say, oh, you know, this guy and this company actually really know what they're talking about and we should be listening to them. So the real core idea behind the book was that there had never been really a book laying out the, you know, a vision of the future of our industry or any kind of real thought leadership. There've been a lot of tactical books of how to, but not thought leadership and vision. Uh, it just never existed. So we thought that by doing that, we would really differentiate ourselves from everybody else um, because nobody else was going to do that. And ultimately, we were, we were really right about that. Um, you know, it, it, it became a real entree into opportunities to speak for him. Uh, we sent out lots of copies to lots of people. We have a lot of uh, prospect meetings we've gone into where the book is sitting on their table. So it's just given us a megaphone that I, I'm not sure a lot of other things really could do. And at this point, it's something now that kind of can't, like, even if somebody else writes a book, in our industry, like, we had the first, it was already there. It, it builds a moat in that way. Yeah, it totally has built a moat. All right, let's go back to the um, best places to work. So, you know, Glassdoor ranking you as the 12th best company in the United States to work for. You guys have also won a number of awards um, on best places to work. So first off, can you walk us through how you've gotten there? And secondly, you don't have a place. So how do you, how do you win these awards as best places to work when we don't have that traditional place to go to to even create a great culture. I think people often thought it was about the office or the free lunches or the, the lunchroom filled with all the snacks and the massages. You don't even have any of that to your benefit. So how have you guys done this? Yeah, so we've done it by really focusing on it uh, from the beginning. Or I shouldn't say from the beginning, but we, once we got to that again kind of 20-person stage where we realized we were actually a real company, that's when we said, look, we, we kind of have something special here how can we harness the specialness that we have and uh, and build on it? And so I think what has really done it for us is that we we very early on identified what we wanted to be, and we then built out everything else around that. So very early on, we knew that we were always going to be a remote company. Um, Bob had no interest to ever go into an office again. Um, I had very little interest to ever go into an office again. Um, you know, at the time we had young children, they're still, they're older now, but they're still relatively young. And so we said, what do we need to do to scale a company where, where this can work? And then we started saying, okay, we probably need certain kinds of people, you know, at the time and really for the first five years from then, one of the things that we did was we said, you know, in looking at demographics, um, who's going to work best in that environment? And ultimately, it meant that we really couldn't hire people right out of college. Most mm. did their entomics is built on, right? They bring them in, they work eight a week, they churn in two years, but, um, but ultimately, you know, that, that's where they're making a lot of their money. We couldn't have that. So we needed to have people who really could work from home, who'd already worked in a crappy cubicle for two years and never wanted to do that again. So, so, what, so we started with that. Then once we had that, we started to say, okay, what do we need to do to build a company and a culture that's really going to make those people want to stay forever, right? What, what, what are the things we have to do and what are the structures that we have to do to make that work? 
And so everything then started growing organically from there. We were really early adopters of video calls. We recognized that even though people were remote, they still wanted to see each other. So um, we, we adopted, we've had several different video uh, uh, systems over the, over the years, but we do tons of video calls. We really try to never do audio only calls. We're really big on that. Um, we really try to have um, uh, a lot of over communication because we've never had an office. You know, we, we've always had to figure out how to communicate with people in ways where they're not all just standing around the office. So we, 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 we try to over communicate as much as we can. We try to repeat things seven times. We still aren't great at it, but we try. Um, you know, we try to make sure that information is disseminated in all the ways that need to happen when you can't just shout it across the office. And we build up, you know, benefits, we built up um, programs, we built up all kinds of stuff that was all predicated on it. So I, I think that's really the biggest difference for us. You know, we didn't, it's not like we started in an office and then we decided, oh, it's cool to work remote. And so some people are remote and some people are in the office, but the culture doesn't really work. Like we've always been that way. So we've just been able to build all the structures that are going to support that. So the, the legacy thinking, the, you know, the old school thinking is that you need people showing up, working nine to five, being in an office to make sure they get stuff done. Um, or you get those managers who are fearful and, you know, how am I, how do I know that they're doing the right stuff or how do I know my team's working? What, what do you do to create that environment so that people are, you know, putting in a fair day's work for a fair day's pay and that you're getting results? And then also what, technology tools might you use to, I guess, people give people the tools to excel in their jobs? Yeah. So I, I, look, the first thing that this all comes down to is, is figuring out what works well in your company from a people perspective and then just hiring for that. So what we have done is, uh, you know, everything kind of starts with core values. We've honed in on three core values that we find in this environment just work really well. Uh, the first core value is own it. The second core value is excel and improve. And the third core value is embrace relationships. And, you know, with own it, it's about accountability, right? So to your point of uh, how do you know they're doing an honest day's work, uh, people who are accountable and who are intrinsically accountable, right? It's not that they're being held accountable necessarily by others, but that they are holding themselves accountable. Um, they're going to do what they need to do. And so it's a matter of finding those people and, and giving them the opportunity to, to do that. Um, excel and improve uh, is people who want to get better because they want to get better. And it doesn't matter if they're going to be in the office or not, they're going to want to get better because that's just part of who they are. And that will ripple through everything. And then embrace relationships. We need people who want to build relationships with each other, with our clients, with our vendors, with everybody. Because if you're a total introvert and you have no interest in relationships, then sitting at home and working all day, um, for most of the positions at our company is going to be the right one. So the first thing is honing in on those core values and then hiring with a really stringent hiring process to bring into people uh, where that's going to fit in terms of, of tools. Is that the next part of what you wanted Cameron tools? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. And that gave you two completely different questions. That's okay. Yeah. So, so tools, um, like I mentioned, we do a lot of, uh, of video conferencing and, and they're good tools for that. Um, we use Slack a lot and we've created a lot of channels which are, I think some people would consider them a little frivolous, but I think given the fact that we're not sitting next to each other, they perform that kind of water cooler chat function um, that people just need to stay connected to each other in, in a not work way. Um, we have a, a, a lot of collaboration through Asana and those kinds of tools, but uh, honestly, it's, it, it's, it's really primarily going to be on video and, and Slack at this point. That, that's what everybody's working on. 
Interesting. All right. You talked about the over-communication, but um, you've also had something around transparency and this kind of radical transparency. Can you give us some examples of, of how you guys, um, I guess, is that one of your core values, something related to transparency as well? Uh, it used to be. It's not anymore, but it, it's, it's, it's core to our business operation, but it's not technically a core value. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, we really believe that, and I guess this goes to the same thing, it, it, it really goes a long way to make people not feel isolated when they are really feeling connected to the company as a whole. And one of the best ways to feel connected to the company as, as a whole is to really know what's going on uh, at all levels of the, of the business. Now, it doesn't mean like literally what's going on, but what it means is we share our financials every month with the entire company. Um, we every, Actually, just today, we did a kickoff call for, for our third quarter with the entire company where we went through what went right last quarter, what went wrong last quarter, what our goals are for this upcoming quarter. Uh, we talked about um, different milestones that were hit and remiss. So when it comes to big initiatives in the whole company, um, everybody heard that and they were able to ask as many questions as they want. Um, you know, there, there's, there's all, I mean, there's really pretty much nothing that happens in the company that we don't either share or would be happy to share if, if somebody asked. We, we operate by what's called what we call the Sunday morning paper test, which is like, <laughs> if we, 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 we try not to have anything where like we would care that much if it got printed in the Sunday morning paper. Um, and if we don't have a lot of secrets, then it kind of forces the issue. I love it. You guys also have a system around, I don't, I don't want to call it exit interviews, but what's it called when someone's leaving the company and you have some system around that? Yeah. So that's called mindful transitions. Yeah. Uh, Bob actually just did a TEDx talk on this. So this has become uh, something that we really push at our company. And for both, I, I mean, like at the end of the day, it, it's, it's for selfish reasons, but I do think that it has positive effects everywhere. What mindful transition means is that um, for an employee to give two weeks notice at a company uh, is the worst possible outcome, right? Because what that means is that the employee didn't trust the company enough to come to them and have a conversation that for some reason they weren't happy or were looking. And it means that the company only has two weeks to figure out what they're going to do to fill that spot. And it also means that really the relationship of trust is now completely broken between those people. And, you know, in an industry like ours, which is a pretty small industry, everyone's going to see everybody again. And so it's not great for anyone, company or employee, to be out there with uh, someone, you know, not feeling like they, they did the right thing or, 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 you know, having some level of, of distrust between them. So our approach is what we call the mindful transition. We really encourage employees who are not happy to come to us, come to their manager, come to HR, sit down, have a conversation, talk it through determine what the root of the unhappiness is. Is it something that can reasonably be solved? And if it's not, let's come up with a plan where over a period of weeks or sometimes even months, you will transition out of the company. We will help you find a job. We provide services. We, we send people to get resumes professionally reviewed. We send people to get headshots. We do all this kind of stuff. Wow. And at the end of that, and, and, we, and, and we do whatever we can for them. We, we refer them to, for jobs, right? If we know someone who's looking for someone who needs that, you know, that skill set, we'll refer them. 
Um, but it's contingent upon that person doing the job to the best of their ability while they're at the company still. And so what this results in is um, just a much, much better relationship where the company feels good, we had time to replace them, the employee feels good, they did the right thing, they potentially got a better, you know, a, a much better fit job for them because we helped them. Um, nobody's left in the lurch. And, and, and a lot of times when this happens, you know, we see each other again, we do business, um, we, we, you know, there, there are other good outcomes. So that's the idea. Yeah, I love that. So one of the things that you guys have had to do through this transition is grow people. And a lot of your current kind of mid senior level team are internals that have grown with the company, correct? Almost all of them. Yeah. So how have you worked to grow them? Because their skills, you know, when you're a 20 person company, 50 person company, 130 person company, the company's so drastically different, not only for you and Bob, but also for them. What have you worked with them on in terms of growing their skill set? Yeah. So we have worked with them uh, on a lot of things. Primarily what it is, is their ability to then become a coach themselves. And so, you know, we, Bob and I will, will work with people. Um, we, uh, have outside coaches that, that if people want help support in that way, um, they will go to them and, and work with them. We have quarterly book clubs for, uh, some of our senior members of our team where we select books on, on leadership and development for them to read. And then we discuss, um, we have, uh, a different internal, uh, forums where people can get together to discuss leadership challenges. Um, we're, we're starting to do more one-on-one -on -one mentoring at, at all levels of the company. So these are all things that we, that we really focus on. Uh, you know, I'll be really honest with you. This is one of the hardest things because it takes time. And especially in an agency, digital agency environment, time is always a thing you don't have. So, you know, a lot of it is trying to make sure that people have the time where they can invest in this kind of learning and where they're not scrambling to put out client fires and, and that can be a struggle. Hmm. Okay. How, how about the discussions where you realize someone has hit their ceiling of complexity and you're, they're not able to, um, to scale? How, how have those kind of discussions gone? Yeah. So first of all, you know, you mentioned transparency. This is one of the things that we've actually been really transparent about with the company. Um, Bob actually developed a, like a, a slide, a graph that kind of shows how um, uh, you know the requirements of positions scales as the company scales, and that it's really hard to keep up with that. You know, if if a company grows fifty percent in a year and and jobs get fifty percent bigger, it's really hard to get fifty percent better, right? To keep up yeah. with that pace. Yeah. So the first thing is is that we have been really transparent with people that like, look, this is the case, right? So uh, hopefully people have on some level internalized it and, 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 and they, they get it. And then when we have the conversation, you know, uh, oftentimes they see it first, you know, they're like, look, I, I get it. And a lot of times it's not necessarily, you know, the next level up may not be what they want. It's not right for them. Um, they, they see it. So those become those mindful transition uh, conversations. Um, and, and, and ideally if we're doing it right, they're, they're, um, very amicable and, and they, they don't turn into to bad talks. So, okay. The, um, 
the slide component of the the people growing and scaling if the company grows by 50% they're still having to grow by 50% i i talked to the uh the founder of infusionsoft about that number and he said that employees in a management role can only ever go through one or sorry two consecutive doubles in the size of their revenue so if you're a 4 million dollar company and you're a manager of IT when the company gets to eight, you could still probably be a manager. When it gets to 16, you're probably at the ceiling of complexity where you really have to rapidly grow your skills again to keep pace. And by the time it gets to 32, you're pretty much out of a role. Uh, and then I read a book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. And he said it was mm-hmm. one, one triple, which is kind of going from three million to nine. You can't really do the next triple. Um, that, those numbers feel accurate. Is that, do you have a data point that you watch on this or are you just constantly working on growing your people? Camp. I think it happens. I think it happens a little bit faster, probably than than three doubles. Yeah. But you know what we are doing is we are look. We we do quarterly um, performance reviews of everybody. We're having constant. Uh, we give constant performance feedback both ways. We're, we're trying to take as much performance feedback as we can. So it it, it we're, we have our finger on this pulse all the time, and we we definitely see it coming. Um, it, it's not a situation typically where someone, you know, either we're surprised or the, or the person is surprised because if you're flagging issues or you're seeing someone fall behind and it's happening quarter after quarter and you're having that discussion, right, then, then, then it is what it is. Um, yeah, so, so in, in any case, the, uh, it, it, I don't have a specific data point on it, but I, 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 I would tell you that, you know, when we went from five to ten, uh, there was a big difference. And then now for, uh, from 10 to 20, we're seeing a big difference. So maybe it's even a double and not a triple. Right. Yeah. What do you think about um, growing globally? I mean, you've now opened up in a couple of other countries. Um, I think you opened up in, in was it China and, and the UK or? Uh, so we opened, so we have uh, folks in Singapore, we have folks in Sydney, and then we have um, a, a pretty big team in London and then a few people scattered elsewhere in Europe. Okay. So what have you learned from doing that? What, what has been, um, I guess, the big learnings that maybe assumptions that we made going in as North Americans that you found to be not true or uh, the big ahas that you've learned that you could share? Yeah. So, so the first thing is uh, we assumed, especially APAC, that people would look and say, oh, hey, the Americans are here. They must know what they're doing because they're Americans. We just are going to hire them. And that has definitely not been the case. Uh, I, I think we, uh, we have learned that lesson uh, a little bit the hard way. You know, there's, um, uh, there's a famous case study where, you know, Starbucks tried to open up in Australia and they basically tried to put their, you know, uh, uh, American blueprint on opening stores in Australia and it failed completely miserably. And there's a lot of hypotheses as to why, but you know, ultimately, Australians have very different rituals around coffee drinking than we do. They have very different feelings about chain stores than we do. There's just a lot of stuff that um, was there that that Starbucks didn't take into account. Mm-hmm. So we 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 knew that we we tried to specifically not do that. But even when we tried to specifically not do that, it, it's so hard, and and we we didn't do a great job. And we're we're trying to re rethink that, or not rethink it, but we're we're trying to do better on that. And and 
do better at acclimating to the local business nuances and the local um, industry needs a little bit better. Yeah. Um, so, so that, I mean, that, that's a big learning. And look, being a remote company across all these time zones, it's hard as hell uh, <laughs> just because people can't be, you know, the, you can't talk to each other at the same time. Now, I, I, it'd be the same if we had offices, but um, I mean, just the communication gets exponentially harder. Yeah, it gets a little wonky. All yeah. right. Final question before we wrap. If, if you were um, to talk to your 21-year-old self and, and kind of try to take some of the ideas or lessons that you now know to be true, but you wish you'd known when you were 21, what's a big lesson that, that you'd like to have told yourself back then? Listen before you talk. Always. Mm. It's like number one. That, that is by far the biggest um, thing that I've tried to work on in myself as a leader and that I still work on all the time. Because my first inclination is just to give my opinion and squash everything, and uh, you can't do that, right? As as a leader, so um, it's listen before you talk. Let everybody put their opinions on the table. It's not about consensus, but it's about um, it's about getting the input and then making everybody feel like they've been heard, um, and, and not kind of being the first to speak and, and squashing the discourse. That's awesome. Matt Wool, president of Acceleration Partners, thank you for being on the Second in Command podcast. And we have successfully, after three attempts, got a complete wrap. Appreciate this time, buddy. All right. Thanks, Cameron. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.